Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. This week we present William Rivers Pitt, senior editor and lead columnist with Truthout.org, who explains why he believes that Donald Trump's pursuit of a deadly coronavirus herd immunity strategy likely killed many thousands of Americans. In Guzzi and Dulaway of the Death Penalty Information Center, who talks about President Trump's decision to order the most federal executions of any president in more than 100 years. And Jeff Cohen, co-founder of RootsAction.org, who discusses his group's No Honeymoon for Biden campaign to pressure the incoming Biden administration to take action on progressive policy solutions. But first we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. In a single tweet on December 10th, President Donald Trump upended 30 years of diplomacy when he unilaterally recognized Morocco's sovereignty over the Western Sahara. Trump agreed to reverse decades of U.S. policy in exchange for Moroccan King Mohammed IV establishing diplomatic relations with Israel, although the kingdom maintained friendly but unofficial relations for years. Since 1975, Morocco has occupied the Western Sahara after Spain abandoned its former colony. A war erupted as Sahara rebels, known as the Polisario Front, battled for control of the territory, forcing tens of thousands of civilians to seek safety in refugee camps. In 1991, the United Nations, supported by the U.S., brokered a ceasefire and launched a decades-long negotiation process to hold a referendum on the status of the Western Sahara. Thirty-eight nations recognized the Sahrawi Democratic Arab Republic, proclaimed by the Polisario Front. In November, the rebels ended the 29-year-old ceasefire and declared a state of war after they accused Morocco of launching military operations in Western Sahara's buffer zone. Nabil Khoury, a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council, observed, Trump has once again disregarded three decades of U.S. and U.N. diplomacy that sought to come to a peaceful resolution of the Western Sahara dispute. It's one more diplomatic fire set by Trump that the incoming Biden administration will have to try to put out. As President-elect Joe Biden names members of his cabinet, he announced that Tom Vilsack, a dairy industry lobbyist and former agriculture secretary, will run the new administration's Department of Agriculture. In the process, Biden passed over African-American Ohio Congresswoman Marsha Fudge, the choice of progressives, who instead was appointed Secretary of Housing and Urban Development. According to The Intercept, Vilsack, a former Democratic governor of Iowa, would be a return to pro-corporate policies that continue to drive rural communities away from the Democratic Party. Vilsack let down independent family farmers when he failed to take on agribusiness domination. Food production is concentrated in the hands of a shrinking number of giant multinational corporations who hold immense power over farmers, workers, consumers, and policymakers. When Vilsack led the USDA, the agency was six times more likely to foreclose on black farmers than white farmers. Massive plant closures threatened the food supply, frontline food workers fell sick and died in large numbers, and many families experienced food insecurity. 
the next agriculture secretary has an unprecedented opportunity to enact much-needed systemic changes in how we grow and distribute food. ProPublica reports federal bank regulators gave J.P. Morgan Chase a slap on the wrist for overcharging 170,000 bank customers due to a software glitch. Instead of imposing any fines on the nation's most powerful bank, regulators and the Office of Comptroller of the Currency, or OCC, simply filed a letter of reprimand in J.P. Morgan's confidential file. Chase had promised some online customers that they would receive an alert before their accounts went negative, but the bank told the OCC that did not happen, as roughly 170,000 accounts dwindled to zero. Chase charges customers who overdraft their accounts as much as $102 per day. The investigation by ProPublica and the Capitol Forum found that since 2017, when President Trump took office, the OCC has found at least six banks wrongly charged overdrafts and related fees. But in each case, the agency quietly rebuked the bank rather than pushing for fines and public penalties. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. According to the Centers for Disease Control, 2020 is on track to be the deadliest year in U.S. history, with more than 3 million deaths expected by the end of December, about 400,000 more recorded deaths than in 2019. The dramatic increase in deaths is due in large part to the coronavirus pandemic. Recent news reports found through internal emails that top Trump appointee Paul Alexander a health and human services advisor until his departure this past fall, repeatedly urged government health officials to adopt a herd immunity approach to COVID-19, encouraging millions of Americans to be infected by the virus. Although the distribution of vaccines has begun, the second wave of the pandemic continues to burn through the U.S., with a death toll over 320,000, the most fatalities from the virus anywhere in the world. Your reporter spoke with William Rivers Pitt, senior editor and lead columnist with Truthout.org, who explains why he believes that Trump's pursuit of a coronavirus herd immunity strategy is likely responsible for killing many thousands of Americans. On a July 4th, no less, email uh, from a former Health and Human Services science advisor, Paul Alexander, quote, there is no other way. We need to establish herd, uh, parenthesis, immunity, and it only comes about allowing the non-high-risk groups expose themselves to the virus, period, capital period. Infants, kids, teens, young people, young adults, middle-aged, with no conditions, etc., have zero to little risk, so we use them to develop herd. We want them infected, unquote. The astonishing gall of, uh, of, of saying that these groups of people, infants, kids, teens, young people, young adults, middle-aged, with no conditions, are not susceptible if even if even one percent of that group of people found themselves susceptible and it's far more than that but if even one percent found themselves susceptible to covid this is if i were in a courtroom i'd call it 
I'd call it negligent homicide to get the conviction, but it's second degree or first degree murder. This is deliberate. It's a deliberate infliction of a disease upon a vulnerable populace, absent an effective health care system with no testing and no vaccines, again, to take the long and bloody way around. Yes, yes, if we reached 70 percent herd immunity by way of just letting it burn through, certainly at the end of that, we would be in a place where we might find ourselves bulletproof to this particular virus. But there would be, by simple math, at least 2 million, if not 3 million people in the ground. There's 330 million people in the country. Uh, 3% of that is 3 million. This is what these people pursued right out there in broad daylight and emails to each other. Michael Caputo, who's uh, Paul Alexander's boss at HHS, was equally vocal about this. And Scott Atlas, the uh, sort of the anti-Fauci, who just beamed himself in the middle of this thing, was even more vocal about the idea that there's nothing we can do about this, so let's just let it burn through. Trump, through all these months of the pandemic, has weaponized COVID. He's created mask wearing and social distancing into a... uh, a culture war weapon. And you have people like Jared Kishner, his son-in-law, who, uh, according to reports in a meeting, basically said that's their problem when it came to New York in the height of the coronavirus where many people were hospitalized and thousands were dying. Again, the Trump administration, Donald Trump himself, weaponized this COVID virus to attack his perceived political enemies, Democrats in the big cities that were going to get hit hard And the thinking, I guess, was that uh, his white supporters in rural states would be safe. Obviously, that's not true. Thousands are dying as we speak everywhere across the country. But this was the kind of warped thinking that we had here from the Trump regime. I do not believe that these people, they do not have anything even vaguely representing a defining philosophy. There's There's no rudder in the water. You point out correctly that they let states like New York, Massachusetts, and California burn for months because those are blue states, and this is all a blue state problem. And they sold the great bulge of America, as Jack Kerouac called it, on the idea that this was a black people problem and a Latino problem and a big democratic city problem. And all of you are fine, so we're not going to really do anything about it. And then The way I've always described COVID is that it's like water. It will find every seam, every hole, every pinprick, every crack, and it will pour through. COVID found all the huge gaping holes and seams in the great bulge of America and turned itself loose upon Trump's core supporters. And guess what? They still didn't do anything because they had no plan. They were jumping from stone to stone. I think the big question for our country right now is, is there accountability for a deliberate policy that brought about mass murder of now more than 300,000 Americans who've died? And according to a Columbia University study, a majority of those deaths could have been prevented had precautions been put in place, as was advocated by public health experts across the country. If McConnell and the Republicans do manage to hold on to the Senate, Uh, after these runoffs, there's no reason why 
various House committees can't run their own commissions and investigations. They are free and clear from all of that. And all Biden has to do is stay the hell out of the way. Um, his Justice Department is equally free to, uh, you know, barring, you know, wholesale pardons. And then off in the, in the distance there is our friends up in New York State, Latita James and Cyrus Vance uh, in the DA's office. To get back to the, the original point, there's no reason under under any whatever variety of circumstances may come down the pike, there's no reason why a House committee or several House committees, uh, democratically controlled, cannot call as many witnesses as they choose to get to the bottom of what the hell happened here. That was William Rivers Pitt, senior editor and lead columnist with Truthout.org. Find a link to his recent editorial titled, Did Trump Deliberately Pursue Genocide Via His Herd Immunity Strategy? by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. As support for the death penalty has steadily declined in the U.S. in recent decades, the federal government under President Donald Trump and Attorney General William Barr have been on a killing spree, executing 10 men on death row, with several more men and one woman scheduled to die in the final weeks before Trump leaves office on January 20th. If the executions are carried out as planned, Mr. Trump will have authorized the most executions of any president in more than 100 years. Incoming President Joe Biden says he intends to end the use of capital punishment by the federal government during his time in office. Among those on death row is Lisa Montgomery, a severely mentally ill woman who was convicted of the horrific crime of killing a pregnant acquaintance and cutting a full-term child from the womb which survived, with Montgomery raising the baby as her own. Montgomery had survived a brutal childhood, where her father and friends repeatedly raped her, while her mother prostituted her daughter to help pay the bills. Between the Lines' Melinda Tuhus spoke with Nguzi Ndulawe, Senior Director of Research and Special Projects at the Death Penalty Information Center. Here she talks about some of the ways that 2020 has been an aberrant year for the death penalty, in the U.S. We've had a really um, unusual year in many ways uh, with the death penalty in the United States. Um, We've had 17 executions total, and 10 of those executions were federal executions. This is really the first time in modern history that, that we've had that. And this was unusual both because of the history of federal executions, where we had gone 17 years without a single one. It's also unusual just because of the speed at which these happened. Um, the last year that we had double-digit federal executions uh, was 1896. Um, it was also unusual because of some of the characteristics of the individual executions. Um, we had the first execution of a Native American for a crime against another Native American on tribal land, and that caused a lot of protests from people of the Navajo Nation, other um, Native American tribes as well. We had the youngest person executed in uh, almost 70 years, um, and that was Brandon Bernard, who was 18 at the time of the crime. We also have the scheduled execution of Lisa Montgomery, um, where if she's executed at the beginning of January, would be the first woman executed by the federal government in almost 70 years as well. Um, so we're really seeing aberrational activity at the federal 
level, at the same time as we as a nation and across the globe are dealing with a pandemic that has upended so much of our normal life. Between July and December, the federal government is the only jurisdiction that has carried out executions. There were only two other executions that occurred um, after the pandemic was declared, one in Texas and one in Missouri. But really, states have stopped executions. They haven't scheduled new ones. They've you know, postponed or uh, delayed executions where they had already been scheduled. So we're really seeing a really break with history on the part of the federal government. But at the same time, we're seeing some very consistent factors. We're seeing lower public support for the death penalty, which we've seen, you know, decreasing throughout the years. Even before the pandemic, we were already on uh, track for low numbers of new death sentences and executions. So we're seeing a declined use of uh, the death penalty across the country, and some of that decline is affected by the pandemic, but we know that there's this longer-term trend. Ngazi Ndulue, from what I know about these cases, these men and, and this woman really could be considered the worst of the worst. We don't have time to go into the details, but their crimes really were horrible. So what's your response to someone saying, if anyone is going to be executed, these are the ones? I think that the, that question about um, the worst of, of the worst is supposed to be kind of at the heart of who gets sentenced to death. Um, but what we see is that we're also not um, reliably seeing that. Now, I, I want to point out that the first people to be executed under uh, federal executions was not based on some type of you know, orderly chart of who is next and who was on death row last. It was a discretionary decision um, that was made by the attorney general and by the Department of Justice, right? So I think that there definitely was a lot of thought to who was going to be chosen to be the first. Um, And I think that there was this idea that, especially for, you know, crimes against children, um, that there was something that they wanted to kind of, you know, showcase the the federal death penalty in some ways. And we also see that in the fact that these people were chosen, the, the first executions were announced during a time where Black Lives Matter protests and and racial justice protests across the country were happening about just general anti-Black racism and other broader issues. And we noticed that for the first week of executions, the first three who were announced to be executed were white. We know that there were no Black people in that first batch. We also know that that's very different from who was actually on death row. We know that federal death row is disproportionately Black and uh, disproportionately people of color. And we also know that racial bias comes into a number of places about jury selection, about decision about future dangerousness. So I think I would say when we're thinking about, you know, the cases and case composition, we definitely know that there were choices made about which cases would be first. But even in that group of cases that were chosen to be first, we can see something where we still have those questions about are we truly looking at the worst of the worst. That was Nguzi Ndulawe, Senior Director of Research and Special Projects at the Death Penalty Information Center. Learn more about the movement to end the death penalty in the U.S. by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org.
progressive groups across the U.S., focused on one central goal over the past year, to defeat President Trump in the November 3rd election. With Joe Biden now set to enter the White House as the nation's 46th president on January 20th, activists are mobilizing once again to fight for the adoption of progressive policies by the new administration. One of the groups now organizing pressure on the incoming Biden administration is RootsAction.org, which supported Bernie Sanders in the Democratic primaries earlier in the year. Roots Action recently launched their new No Honeymoon for Biden campaign to push back against the destructive forces of corporate power, racial injustice, extreme income inequality, environmental assault, and the military-industrial complex. Your reporter spoke with Jeff Cohen, founding director of the Park Center for Independent Media at Ithaca College, and co-founder of RootsAction.org. Here he talks about some of the key issues his group will be pressuring the Biden administration to take action on, including establishing a $15 federal minimum wage, cancellation of student debt, and rolling back mass incarceration. So what we've done with this new campaign, and anyone can find it on social media, hashtag NoHoneymoon or NoHoneymoon.org, is... We're trying to get progressives to challenge the Biden administration from day one. As we look back at history, we see that progressives didn't do that for Bill Clinton when he was elected in 92. Uh, The left was happy that hope and change, the first African-American president, was elected in November uh, 2008, Obama, and there wasn't really much pressure from progressives. And in both of those cases... Bill Clinton was vacillating, hesitating, doing corporate stuff like the NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement, and it led to the Republicans just storming back in 1994 and taking Congress. The same thing with Obama. There was a lot of hesitation. There was a great bailout of Wall Street, but not Main Street. And you had record-breaking foreclosures. And uh, progressives wanted him. There were a few, a couple progressive economists in the White House, and they said, where's the foreclosure freeze that will help uh, lower middle class and middle class families, especially disproportionately families of color? But Obama's team would not do that. There was too much hesitation. The Republicans come storming back and take Congress in 2010. So in a sense, nohoneymoon.org, hashtag nohoneymoon, is an effort today to say that the progressive movement, which is better organized than it's been in decades, better funded than it's been in decades, better networked, more astute at the need to challenge Democratic leaders, we believe that we can help save the Biden administration from itself by pushing that administration to really deliver for working class people real reforms that will prevent the Republicans from storming back in 2022 in the congressional elections. Jeff, I wanted to revisit the two presidents you you spoke of earlier. After Bill Clinton and Barack Obama were elected president and succeeded on popular Republican presidents, the left in this country, progressive activists, went into a deep sleep. There was little activity on the ground, little pressure applied to these two Democratic presidents, and the status quo hung in there. What is different about this moment? Maybe you can help our listeners gauge 
the level of activism that's out there and the indications that you have at rootsaction.org that people are raring to go and not just go back to sleep for four years, as happened so many times before. I'm not a young man. Uh, I'm almost 70. I've been in activism, progressive activism, since I was in high school, from the Vietnam War and the Civil Rights era. I can tell you that the U.S. left, the progressive movement, is better organized, better networked, better funded than it's been in my lifetime. It's multiracial. It's multigenerational. We're ready to battle. We know what the proposals are that can solve the country's problems. The Green New Deal is magic. It not only transforms our energy system, it can produce millions of jobs. And because of the pressure from below, Biden has improved on that issue. He won't use the phrase Green New Deal, but his proposal for how many jobs he's going to create, how fast he's going to move to carbon net zero has sped up. So progressives are more organized than we were in in the past. And I would argue, Scott, more astute about the need to keep the pressure on the Democratic leaders, because Democratic leaders keep hearing from the corporate media and keep hearing from the corporate donors, go slow, yes, no, status quo. That doesn't get the job done. That leads to young people and people of color not turning out in 2022 for the congressional elections. It leads to uh, swing voters uh, swinging the other way. If you can make people's lives better, if you can forego student debt, thousands and thousands of dollars to each student who's holding this federal debt, if you can raise the minimum wage and impact the lives of millions of workers, that's how you win. Our model is Franklin Roosevelt. Franklin Roosevelt was pushed by socialist movements, labor movements in 1933-34. He got better. They kept winning elections. They were winning congressional elections. It's because the activism from below pushed the administration, the Democratic administration in power to do these popular things that cemented the loyalty of working class people to the Democratic Party. So uh, that's why, I mean, I believe, I've, I've, again, the Internet has been awful for right-wing disinformation and myth, but it's been great for left-wing and liberal organizing. And that's why I say from my experience of going back decades that progressives are much stronger and much smarter now than they were during past Democratic administrations. That was Jeff Cohen co-founder of the online activist group RootsAction.org and founding director of the Park Center for Independent Media at Ithaca College. Learn more about the No Honeymoon for Biden campaign by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. You've been listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org 
where you can hear our current and archive programs in MP3 and streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on EJAZ Radio in Kampala, Uganda, WRFA in Jamestown, New York, KPOV in Bend, Oregon, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris. Thank you.